Today, we will study one of the most theologically significant passages, not just in the book of James, but the entire New Testament. This is our fifth study in the book of James. And, and I said earlier that uh, this book, Letter of James, is very practical rather than theological, like Paul's writing. Today's passage is exceptionally theological and densely doctrinal. It is also a very controversial passage that has confused many people. The theme of our text is about the authentic faith that the followers of Christ should possess and practice. Here we settle the question of faith and work once for all. You know, last time I told you the faith cannot exist with a favoritism or discrimination. Today we'll learn that faith cannot exist without good works. So let's read our text together. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have a faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have a faith, I have a deed. Show me your faith without this, and I will show you my faith by my deed. You believe there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says that Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as a righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave a lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As a body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This passage has two key words, which are works and faith. The word faith is repeated 11 times. But the real key word is work. Some English translation actually have, English Bible translated the action or deed. And that word, uh, work, is repeated 11 times plus several associated words. Greek word for work is ergon, from which we have English word energy. So real faith is an energetic faith, living moving, working faith. The crucial verse in this passage is verse 24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. This crucial verse is also controversial because Protestant Christians believe that we are just by faith alone. This verse directly seems to contradict the key evangelical conviction. Here many see James and Paul are completely opposing 
each other. Because in Romans 3.28, Paul said, For we maintain a person is just by faith apart from the works of the law. While some find this to be a proof for the inconsistency of the Scripture, let me tell you, first of all, this is why we should study the Bible more than just reading or hearing it. I want to show, first of all today, before we go to main point, there is no disagreement but a deep harmony between Paul and James. For instance, in Titus 1.16, Paul said, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And later, Titus 3.8, The saying is trustworthy that I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Apostle Paul also emphasized the importance of a good work. When he warned Titus about the spiritually rebellious, troublemaking people, he said they profess to know God, but their action tells a different story. They deny God by their action. Then Paul said those who believe in God should devote themselves to good works. There was a nothing but agreement and support between James and Paul. They were co-laborers of the same gospel. According to Book of Acts, they know each other. They met each other several times. And especially Acts chapter 15, which describes the council, Jerusalem council, first church council, their understanding of the gospel was the same, that faith produces good works. Because a true faith in grace of God always leads one to good works. Not to be saved, but already saved and pleased God who forgave us. That's why, that's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9. There Paul said, we are saved by grace through faith for the good works. That is a biblical understanding of a faith and work. We are saved by God's grace through faith for the good works. So we have to recognize that when Paul criticized the work of the law, works of the law in Romans 3.28, Paul was actually critical about circumcision and Jewish rituals rather than works of love, such as caring for those in need. Both Paul and James were deeply committed to caring for the poor. You know, do you remember Paul's last trip to Jerusalem was risking his own life to deliver love offering of Gentile Christians to poor Jewish Christians in Judea. Although Jewish religious leaders were determined to kill Paul because Paul was preaching the gospel of a God's unconditional, universal love to include everyone, including Gentiles, into his kingdom. You know, another way to see Paul and James on the harmony of uh, uh, faith and work is that somebody said, Paul denies a need for so-called pre-conversion work, whereas James emphasized absolute necessity of a post-conversion work. Uh, another you know, New Testament scholar, he actually put it in this way. Some medical people understand this. Paul is uh, dealing with uh, obstetrics about 
with, about, with how new life begins, whereas James is dealing with the pediatrics and the geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. So, there is no discrepancy or disagreement between Paul's theology and James' theology. And allow me to bring up one more clarification that confirms there is no disagreement between not only James and Paul, but also James and Martin Luther. Because Luther excluded the book of James from his New Testament canon due to this potential misleading and the misreading by Roman Catholics. But would you believe it? Many, I mean, so many people assumed that Luther's theology was all about the justification by faith alone, and that he didn't have any notion of uh, you know, good work. Think again. Let me read a quote from the Luther's Introduction to German Bible, 1522. Luther said, Faith is a living, creative, active, powerful thing. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done. But before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not good works in this manner is an unbeliever. He stumbles around, looks for faith and good works, even though he does not know what faith or good works are. So Luther believed that faith, real faith, is an active, living, you know, powerful you know, faith. Like Martin Luther, James makes a strong statement in today's text. Twice in the beginning, in verse 17 and verse 26 at the end, James said, faith without work is dead. Faith without work is dead. That's the inclusio of this text. Now, as James calls every followers of Christ to practice the living faith with the good deeds, he shows us in this text two kinds of faith, dead faith and living faith. And as we, as we study there are two kinds of faith, the living, that faith and the living faith. Let us examine our faith in life and rededicate ourselves to God today, especially as we celebrate our sixth church anniversary. So first, we're going to look at the, that faith and the later exemplify the faith of a demon. When James was talking about problem of a dead faith or faith without works, James was not talking about secular atheists who deny existence of God. James was calling out, actually, shallow believers with a superficial love and selfish lifestyle. Look at the verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have a faith but has no deed? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Twice, James asked a rhetorical question, what good is it to have a faith without good deeds? And then he said, the, uh, you know, he said go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. That is a typical Jewish greeting back then, you know, shalom, go in peace, shalom and prosper. If you give this a typical Jewish greeting, 
to the poor needy people without helping their physical need, James said, your faith is dead. Now, why did he use the, this expression, dead? Why couldn't he say, you know, your faith is immortal or, you know, some other, your faith is, uh, you know, uh, shallow or, you know, your faith is, uh, you know, short or whatever. Why does he use the word dead? What's the, you know, one thing we know about that thing? You know, that thing, anything is dead, eventually stinks. It's not shallow. It stinks. Dead orthodoxy, correct faith, correct doctrine without caring work, caring heart is actually hypocritical and, and stinky. James' denunciation of a lifeless orthodoxy is actually reminds us of another famous passage in the Old Testament when God called Jeremiah to condemn Israelites in Jeremiah chapter 7. So let me read that passage. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is a word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gates of the Lord's house. They'll proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who came through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I'll let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is a temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Rare three, three, pitted, three, three repetitions in the Bible. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, fatherless, or widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. This is a, uh, Jeremiah's a famous uh, temple sermon where God awakens his people from their own deception of a lifeless, ritualistic, loveless orthodoxy. Here Yahweh was rebuking his people who thought right worship was enough to just, you know, in their standing with God. And right worship substitute for merciful behavior. And God wants his people to care for vulnerable foreigners, exposed to widows, orphans, more than any act of worship, even correct orthodoxy. Having the temple of true God was a blessing. But without the heart of God to defend the defenseless and help the hopeless, temple of Jerusalem was a nothing but dead, stinky orthodoxy. And God said, don't fool yourself. Even though this is a temple of God, if you don't behave as a people of God, your temple means nothing. God desires his people's love more than anything, more than any worship. By the way, what James was doing here is a well-known ancient rhetorical device called a diatribe. And diatribe is where, uh, in which the fictional sparring partner is uh, called out, created by use of a question and answer. 
And so kind of uh, you imagine some kind of uh, Im imagine an opponent or adversary or debater, and then you will use this uh, through the conversation you're making uh, your philosophical point. This is a very common rhetorical device. And the examples are usually exaggerated and sharpened. And James used a diatribe twice a year. In the second diatribe, James tells us faith without work is not just that, but demonic. Look at it, verse 18. If someone will say, you have a faith, I have a deed, show me your faith without deed, I will show you my faith by my deed. You believe there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. That faith, faith without work, is not just lifeless and loveless, but a demonic. It is no different from demonic faith. You know, here James was saying that Satan and his horde of uh, evil hordes of demons are monotheists, like Orthodox Jews. Even demons know there is only one God. They can recite the Shema. You know that Deuteronomy 6.4? Here Israel, the Lord your God is one. Demons know that better than anybody. They actually see that only one God. Yet their loyalties remain same. They are not turning to God. They are still demonic. Knowing correct doctrine is not everything. Correct Doctrine without unchanged disposition of a life means worse than nothing. And this is why, you know, Jeremiah 7, God warned twice that don't trust the deceiving word. You know, sometimes orthodoxy can deceive us. When you understand, when you know something, that kind of deceive that you have it all, Bible says very clearly, until your knowledge becomes your heart and becomes a part of your life, it is not done. Here, according to James, demons do something about their, 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 uh, their belief. They travel violently when they face one true God of the universe. The word shudder actually means not just a slight trembling. It is an uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent shaking from extreme fear. And James asserts that demons can actually match the original challenger's theology point by point. They are overwhelmed by the truth of these doctrines, but they remain condemned. Thus, one cannot save a workless doctrine because that lives once again. If our faith doesn't have a work, that faith is no different than that of demons. Now, Jonathan Edward preached a sermon on James chapter 2, 19. And today's our text. And the title was, True Grace Distinguished from Experience of Demons. The title was, a True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of a Devil. And Jonathan Edward, this well-known American Puritan preacher, said, Demons attended the best divinity school in the world. They've been to highest heaven. They've been to the very presence of God. They know God better than anyone. They will ace all theological PhD comprehensive exams with the flying colors. 
they have not only profound intellectual recognition of God, but they also have powerful emotional reaction to God. Yet their life is unchanged, unloving, and disobedient as before. This is why demons are condemned. So if we claim to know God of love, and we don't love the needy, we stand in the same condemnation. What a diatribe. What a diatribe. Demons know God's greatness and goodness, but you know what? They don't believe one thing. That is, God is love. By that I mean, God loves them more than they can love themselves. You know, demons are not just deceivers. They are self-deceived. By their own hubris, they think they can love and take care of themselves better than God does for them. Now, how about us? Do you know God loves you? Not just loves you, but God loves you more than you love yourself? Do you know God can make your life better than you can? You know, people wonder what is the opposite of a faith. Opposite of a faith is not unbelief. It's a fear. You, you know, that's what demons have. Opposite of a faith is a fear. What? Fear of what? You don't fear to turn your life to God. You want to control your life because you think you can handle your life better than God. You want to be God to yourself. That is opposite of a faith. Do you think your own plan and your own purpose and your own abilities are better than God's? Think again. Today, we are very close to demonic. Now, James goes to the negative example, to the positive examples of faith. He gives two positive examples. First one is Abraham, father of our faith, our first spiritual role model. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without these is useless? The foolish person in Greek actually means an empty person, kenos, empty person. And useless in Greek means actually workless, workless. So James was playing a theological pun here. He was saying that faith without work does not work. That's what he's saying. Faith without faith, a faith without work does not work. Now, James said, verse 21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed it was a credit to him as a righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. Here, James was giving a positive example of a faith by reversing order of a two key events in the life of Abraham. The first mentioned event was when Abraham offers his son Isaac on the altar in Mount Moriah. This obedience of Abraham happened after Abraham was a several years after he was 100 years old. We all know Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old, right? And when they went to the Mount Moriah, Isaac was uh, strong enough to carry the wood. That means he's a young man. So this story happened toward the end of Abraham's life. There, on top of the you know, uh, Mount Moriah, 
Abraham did not hesitate to sacrifice his son. Why? If you look at the Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 said this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham re realized that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Did you know Abraham had a faith in resurrection? Christians are not the only ones who believe in the resurrection. Our father Abraham also had a resurrection faith. His version of Easter is a Mount Moriah. Actually, his resurrection faith was proven because he's willing to sacrifice the most precious treasure of his life, his one and only son, Isaac. By the way, why did God call Abraham to do this kind of a very brutal, inhumane, almost a pagan sacrifice? Do you know why? This is a prophetic call of God because what God called Abraham to do with his son was what God actually did with his only son Jesus on the cross later. According to Jewish tradition, Temple of Jerusalem was built in the very spot where Abraham built the altar on Mount Moriah. Jesus died outside of the city of Jerusalem for our sins and then rose from the dead to show God's forgiveness of our sin and also his victory over death. The other event in the life of Abraham that James cited here was story in Genesis 15. This was when Abraham lived in the promised land for several years after following God's word, but without receiving God's promise of a son. So, you know, after Abraham settled down in the promised land, he began to wonder, what happened to the promise of God? I kept my bargain. Where is God's promise? Where is my, you know, where is the promised son? And then Abraham became fearful and anxious about the future. That's why if you look at the Gen uh, Genesis chapter 15, first thing that God told Abraham when he came to him was what? Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, and I'm, uh, I'm your shield, and great reward. God is saying, I'm your protection. I'll take care of your future. But you know what? Abraham was still uh, depressed, full of self-pity. Guess what Abraham said? Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And uh, you have given me no children. So servant in my household will be my heir. When Abraham was still kind of uh, doubtful and, uh, you know, mopey, God took that mopey Abraham outside of tent. And what did God do? Abraham, look at the sky, count the stars, look at the land, count the sand. That's how many your descendants will be. And that's then the Genesis 15, 6 comes. Abraham believed the Lord. And God credited to him as righteousness.
Abraham believed God and his promise against all out of his circumstances and his emotions. And so James quoted Genesis 15:60 here. And the James, you know, Genesis 15:6 is a very important and famous quote because here for the first time in the Bible, we see the word believe and righteousness. This is the first time the word believe and righteousness appeared in the Bible. From the beginning, faith and righteousness are twin truths of the gospel. This statement was later quoted in Romans 4, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 11. But the first one to quote Genesis 15, 6 in the New Testament was James. For James, Abraham's faith in God's promise was completely revealed and completed by his obedience to sacrifice his son to Isaac. Abraham trusted God. That's why Abraham was called a friend of God in the Bible. You know, the essence of a faith is a trust. When you have a faith in God, especially God who claimed to love you more than anything, you trust Him. You trust Him with your life and your plan and your future. You know, that's the friendship. What is the friendship? Friendship is to come down to, you know, trusting one another and helping one another in whatever situation. You know, here, every Christian must examine ourselves and we, we must remember that in our faith journey, we constantly must make a you know, decision. That is, am I going to be a friend of God or am I going to be a friend of the world? You know, there's only two kinds of friendship, spiritual friendship, either friend of God or friend of the world. Am I trusting and attracting the promises and the treasures of the world, or am I trusting God's promises and treasuring them as my life, deep in my heart? Now, James does not stop with the example of Abraham for the positive faith model here. His second example of a living faith was surprising choice. Because it was a woman, not a man, not a Jew, but a Gentile. Not a prominent, you know, uh, ethical, moral person, but a very problematic prostitute. So, verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As a body without a spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. Why did James choose a Rahab as an exemplary believer of a living faith among so many other heroes of a faith in the Old Testament? There are several reasons. First of all, James was using, today you learn a lot about the ancient rhetorical, you know, uh, 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 methods, so, uh, okay, I'll just say. James was using a rhetorical device called uh, mirism, mirism, to include everyone as a possible follower of Christ. What is a mirism? Mirism is a rhetorical device in which the combination of a two contrasting parts of the whole refer to whole. For example, in order to say that I searched everywhere, you know, ancient people, they say, I searched high and low. That means high and low and everything in between. 
So biblical example of a mirrorism is God created heavens and earth. What does that mean? God created everything great and small, high and low. God created everything between the heavens and earth. God is a creator of everything. So Rahab differs in almost every way from Abraham. Whereas Abraham was a wealthy and moral male, father of a Jewish nation, major figure in his uh, society, Rahab was a probably, not probably, definitely poor. No one is, you know, choose a you know, prostitution as a career. She's poor, and that's the only choice she has. Definitely immoral, female, outcast of a Canaanite nation, a minor figure in the society. And Abraham and Rahab together form a mirrorism of a believers redeemed by God's grace. So between Abraham and Rahab, anybody, anybody can be redeemed and belong to God's kingdom. We are all invited to God's kingdom. Anyone can receive God's saving grace and demonstrate genuine, genuineness of a faith like uh, Abraham and now Rahab. So, this example of Rahab as the opposite end of uh, this, uh, almost every spectrum from you know, Abraham you know, reminds us a very important thing. Even the least and the last ones can demonstrate their faith by good work. You know, sacrificial giving is not only for the rich Christians. Every Christian. And actually, Gospel of Mark, who gave the most when Jesus went to the temple? It was not rich people. It was the widow who dropped the two you know, pennies. Second, Rahab was a role model Gentile proselyte or convert. Her faith saved not only herself, but her family and others. She saved herself and her family by assisting Jews in entering the promised land. And she is celebrated in the genealogy of Jesus. And some people kind of have a difficulty with Rahab because, you know, Rahab, in a way, lied to his own people. You know, that when he's king, the king of Jericho sent the soldiers to capture the Israeli spies. She actually lied to her, her own country's authority. And some people have a difficulty. And we have to recognize this. Both Abraham and Rahab, they left their own countries, their own people, and they follow God as a top priority. Someone said, if God accepted Rahab's rebellion against a nation's authority, it is not for us to judge her decision. And I want to say this. You know, people who don't know the Old Testament, they say the God of the Old Testament is a God of genocide. And look at the book of you know, Joshua. You know, God is a brutal. Do you know first story in the, uh, in the book of uh, Joshua is what? God saving a, pro, you know, a, a prostitute named uh, Rahab. Rahab knew that God of Israel was genuine, is the, the true great God, and she wants to be saved, but she didn't know how. And that's how God sent the Israel spy to her place. And that's how she met, you know, 
she, she, her, in a way, prayer was answered. And the first story in the book of a military conquest was God's saving prostitute. And much more, she made all the way to genealogy of our Savior. So, Rahab is the exemplary convert or Gentile proselyte who began to follow God of Israel. Third and final reason that Rahab was called was that in the early church tradition, Rahab was considered, I mean, actually both Abraham and Rahab, they are both considered the examples of works of hospitality. Hospitality. So there is a, a second century, early second century church father named Clement of Rome. In his writing, he said this, Through faith and hospitality, Rahab the prostitute was saved. When spies were sent into uh, Jericho by, he said, Jesus, son of Nun. Joshua is a you know, uh, Jewish name of Jesus. The king of the land knew that they had come to spy out his country, sent out men to offend them, but they might be taken out, put to death. But the hospitable Rahab, having received them, hit them in the apostolate, and so forth. Clement of Rome used Rahab in his writing as an example of not just faith, but he connected the faith with the hospitality. And they called his congregation to follow example of not only Abraham, but also Rahab. Because both Abraham and Rahab, do you remember Abraham's story in the Genesis 19? Welcomed the, you know, the travelers, three travelers, on the way to you know, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and he interceded for them. Our spiritual forefathers, they are hospitable people. They welcome the strangers. And the early church is known for welcoming strangers and foreigners. I think this is a direct call for all of us to commit once again to house church. What is a house church? We welcome strangers in love of Christ. And we tell them that a you are not just a stranger. To God, you are VIP. God is looking for you. And we are happy to, you know, journey together and share, show, you know, God, what God, you know, who God is. So, dear brothers and sisters, the last things of, uh, of uh, James today was this. James' last analogy was a body and spirit. Just like a body without spirit is dead, he said that faith without good work is dead. And this is my last quote. Oh, I don't think we have quote this, but too many Christians today, they think the faith means uh, just a private or individual, nothing more than private you know, affair and individual views. Even the, they, they, even the commitment to gather with others to worship God regularly seems very unnecessary to some Christians. And James certainly tells us if a faith without community could survive. And this is the last thing about James. James' great contribution to Christian faith is not on the doctrine of justification, but on the true faith. It's all about radical obedience to God who wants, to, wants us to love the strangers 
and foreigners and all those poor and broken people. That is what James is calling us. And that is what James said, when we love those that Christ came to find and die for and save, we become children of God and we glorify God. Let's pray.